0: We are in uh, a couple weeks into it. It's called the space between us We're looking at the power of unity and the the preeminence of it in in the scriptures How oneness always wins and therefore how to reduce conflict the space between us And so today I want to look at the ancient wisdom of Jesus's brother James who, you know, I have two boys in the house, and so you would imagine that James probably is familiar with conflict, family conflict, and it was likely with Jesus. I'm imagining that Jesus was administering to his younger brother James first century noogies and wedgies all the time. And if you were James, imagine the privilege of your brother walking around and telling you all the time, oh, and by the way, when you get your underwear back to its normal place, don't forget, I am your Lord and Savior. So if, if anybody has an idea about how to, con- uh, how to deal with some conflict, I would guess it would be James. John Ortberg, uh, in his book, Everybody's Normal Till You Get to Know Them, shares a very personal conflict story, one that resonates with me a little bit. He says, one day many years ago, when we had three children under the age of five, we were taking a long drive, and all of the three children were in the back asleep, which meant my wife, who was normally home with them all day had gotten a few golden moments of silence. Now, what's most embarrassing for me is that when we go for a long drive, the person who has to make the most pit stops all the time is me. Everyone in the family has a retention capacity that is frankly inhuman. It's like traveling with four camels. At one point, I said to my wife, I have to make a stop. No, you don't, she said. (laughs) The kids are all asleep. If you stop this car, they'll wake up. I'll lose this quiet. If you love me, if you're any kind of a man, you won't stop this car. Well, I held out for as long as I could, a good 30 seconds. And then I I stopped at the next service station. I quickly, uh, quietly got back into the car, gently eased the door shut. But there was the tiniest little stirring in the back seat. The baby's awake, Nancy said. That's all, three words, and then silence. But do you think she was just passing me some neutral information about the baby's state of consciousness? Oh, no. When you know someone well enough, you learn to read between the lines. The baby's awake. He wouldn't be if it weren't for you. Oh, there would be peace in the valley if it weren't for you. I, their mother, who is home with all three children pulling at me, tugging at me, chanting mommy, 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 if it were some kind of Eastern mantra, I'd be experiencing a rare moment of quiet and serenity if you had the retention capacity of a six-year-old. And if you weren't more concerned with your own comfort and convenience than the emotional survival needs of your wife and children. All that in just three words, the baby's awake. (laughs) A few few months later, he says, we were on another marathon journey, this time through the desert of Arizona. It was a blistering hot day, and the kids were asleep. I made the mistake of purchasing and consuming a 44-ounce Big Gulp iced tea. Nature took its cruel course. I need to stop, I said. I need not to stop, Nancy said. I have a passionate, burning need to stop. Believe me, if there was a way not to stop, I wouldn't stop. Well, we've been down this road before, but this time Nancy broke the cycle. She empathized with my situation and then got a horribly creative gleam in her eyes. She came up with a solution that could accommodate both our needs and have a clear win-win outcome. She handed me the now empty 44-ounce Big Gulp cup. (laughs) You promised, she said. Greater love hath no man (laughs) than to hand over a Big Gulp cup. Let me remind you why... We're working through this and we're spending the weeks we are on it, and why it's so important. Jesus, in his final prayer, shortly before he is arrested and crucified, he begins to pray. He begins first to pray for his disciples, those that are there with him, and then literally he begins to pray for you. My prayer, Jesus said, as John recorded it, is not for them alone, the disciples. He said, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you, literally. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, I in them and you in me, so that we may be brought to complete unity. See, this issue of reducing the space between us, lowering the conflict levels, is so critical to Jesus. It's so, so critical, it's at the forefront of his thought in his final moments. Why? He goes on. Because then the world will know, if we walk as one, what will the world know? Why is this so important? Well, first, the world will know that you sent me. The first reason that, that we're working on this, and I'm gonna go through this every week because I, we need to remember why it's so important. The first reason is that you and I are in our relationship. We are to mirror God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, we're invited into that kind of unity that God with God, and Jesus prays that we would enjoy it and value and protect it both with God and with one another, and if we do, When we get it right, it will be evidence that Jesus is who he said he is, sent by the Father as the Savior of the world. That's pretty important. Second, the second thing Jesus says, if you do this, the world will know, if they love one another, the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. See, our oneness will help people to understand the nature and the character and the heart of God. Look, we all know this, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3, 16 through 17. Oh, man, we love it, don't we? And how do we communicate it best? Well, that guy in the end zone at the football game, right, with that big thing that he holds up. And I think Jesus would be going, you know, that's really awesome, but... That's not doing much, man. What, here's a crazy idea, what if you kind of loved one another? Maybe people would start to understand who I am. And and finally, the third reason this is so critical is we've been looking at this letter Paul wrote to this church in a city called Corinth and, and, and this church was a mess. They were fighting over everything. And here's the third reason. Here's what Paul told him. He told this warring church that was kind of splintering apart, he goes, you are the body of Christ. And each of you is a part of it. And as a result of that, our purpose and our identity is, and our destiny is discovered, not in our individual pursuits, but as we find our place in the body, in the whole. And it's exactly for these reasons that oneness and unity is at the forefront of most of the teachings in the New Testament books. But for centuries, it's just not been a big deal in the church. We've missed its core centrality. In fact, if we're honest, and I, try, I like to be honest, we're, we're known more often for how we fight than how we unite. There's an old, well-known church joke about this. You might have heard it, and this is, this is how well-known it is, that there's literally an old joke about it. It's about a Christian stranded on a desert island. Have you heard this? It's a Christian stranded on a desert island. Um, he's there for many months, and he's entirely alone. Nobody there. Eventually, a passing ship picks him up. As they're leaving, the captain says, well, what are those three huts over there on your island? Well, he goes, that, that's my house, and that's my church. The man replied, and what's the third hut? Oh, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> right? Like, this is what we've become known for. And so that's why Paul, he goes, there's a lot of risk here, right? The gospel is at risk. The truth about who who Jesus is, the truth about God's character, uh, your your purpose and identity, it's all at risk here. Paul, Paul challenged this church in Corinth to a better way. He said, look, there's another way to live, love. We talked about what that looked like a couple weeks ago, but he understand the centrality of this message of unity. It was Jesus who said this, a new command I'm giving you. I know you know all the Ten Commandments. I know you, you know the 600-plus other ones that the, the rabbis have been teaching you. I will fulfill those for you. My life, and death, and resurrection will take care of those for you. They have no hold over you anymore. I'm giving you a new one. This is a new thing. It's not an old thing mixed with Jesus. All of those things are taken care of by me. Here's a new command for you. Love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. It was Jesus, the same Jesus who said, all of the law and the prophets, which is how they they would have referred to the kind of the Old Testament. All of the law and the prophets hang on just two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And gosh, that seems... Well, Jesus, you mean I, I, I don't have to fulfill all these 600-plus commandments to be right with you? I just have to love God and my neighbor? Well, that seems kind of easy. This is like dumbed-down Christianity, I guess, over here at Mendham. Except yeah, it's not that easy, at least left to our own devices without the power of God at work in your life. See, in our world, and you're familiar with this, conflict is our story, like, it comes quite naturally. I'm pretty good at it. According to FBI statistics, there is one violent crime in our, in our country every 24 seconds. There's an aggravated assault every 48 seconds. There's a murder every 23 minutes. Murder is one of the leading causes of death for, for both young men and women in America today. Listen to these last two, just about how w- w- conflict. Domestic violence is the top cause of visits to emergency rooms by women. This one really blew me away. I want you to picture the the Vietnam Wall, okay, that's in D.C. If you've been there, it just takes your breath away how many men were lost in that conflict. During the war in Vietnam, more women were murdered at home than men were slain on the battlefield. It's a real issue. If you're honest, you know it. It's not just physical violence, though. Our inability to get along, to to love one another, even those who we stood up and pledged that we would love till death do uh, do we part, our inability to do it has ramifications. Think of the role that anger and fights and quarrels play in marriages and in parenting and in our workplaces and, unfortunately, in our churches. John Ortberg put it this way. He said, it's remarkable and, ap- and appalling that by and large in churches today, we're not scandalized. This is boy, Isaac said this so brilliantly, and he didn't know what I was talking about, but he just nailed it. It's remarkable and appalling that by and large in churches today, we're not scandalized by broken relationships and chronic enmity between people. He says the same thing. He goes, when I was growing up, I knew of many churches where the sins that really got people into trouble revolved around lifestyle issues smoking a cigarette, having a beer, going to the wrong kind of movie, or listening to the wrong kind of music. Even today, if you hear of a pastor being fired from a church for moral reasons, you can make a pretty safe bet, well, except for the fact that you're not supposed to bet, that moral involves sex or money. But nobody is scandalized by a lack of love. So Paul's writing to this warring church In Corinth, And and this church is a mess, okay? They are fighting over cultural issues, moral issues, doctrinal issues, and theological issues. And to that church, here's what he wrote. He goes, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Which is weird because these people, a lot of them know their theology, and they're warring over a, a differing understanding of their doctrine. He goes, look, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. That's a pretty famous verse there, that whole thing about um, I should have given you milk, not solid food. Do you know when you hear that verse come up the most? When you ask somebody why they left their church, well, you know, I, I need meat, and I was just getting milk there. So Paul says, look, I, 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 would li- I could give you more, but I can't because you're still worldly. Now, do you know what their evidence of being worldly was? Because we messed this up. My, my wife just, she has shared this story many times. When she was growing up, she grew up in the same kind of church that, that Isaac said that he, he was from. And when my wife, one day when she was in high school, she got her ears pierced and she came home and her dad took one look at her and said, well, now I got to resign from the elder board. like <laughs> Completely serious right? Why? Because my daughter is worldly. My daughter is worldly. Next thing you know, she's going to be listening to that rock and roll, dating some tall, skinny kid. <laughs> Do you know why Paul goes, I, I can't take it to any depth. Do you know why you're still so immature? Do you know why you want to see what the proof of your worldliness is? For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Aren't you acting just like mere humans? You see, if you want to judge somebody spiritually, if you want to look at their spiritual maturity, and by the way, please just judge yours. If you want to understand your own spiritual maturity, look no further than your relationships. What are they characterized by? Are jealousy and quarreling hallmarks of them? Because this is the same church that Paul would say, when I was a child, I spoke and I thought and I reasoned like a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. And what were those childish things? At the top of the list are things like jealousy and quarreling. So what do we do? How do we, how do we fix it? How do we grow up? Why do we fight? How do we stop? It's interesting. Uh, I mean, it's... I don't know if it comes through, but I spent a lot of time on this. (laughs) And so I was studying all week why why we fight. Why is it we do this? And so there's been a prevailing thought process about how to deal with anger and conflict, going all the way back to Sigmund Freud. Because there's this commonly shared assumption about anger, and it was that whatever you do, you need to let it out. Just let it out. Don't keep it in. It'll kill you. You got to let it out. Express it. Blow off some steam. Because once you do, you'll feel better. And then the healing process can begin. Now, maybe you were taught that. Or maybe you caught that from your mom and dad. Don't repress, express. Horrible idea. Let me show you why. Um, Some of you, you do this, right? You get so, mad, I'm going to scream into my pillow. Ah, I'm going to punch the wall. I'll feel better. Now, when I was studying this, some of the first work on anger had to do with a lot of (laughs) times... We're an interesting lot, us humans. A lot of times, our anger begins with inanimate objects, uh, and so we love expressing anger at inanimate objects. It's the beginning of anger in our lives, and it just reminded me of maybe my all-time favorite YouTube video, which I figured I'd share with you just to give you an example. Check this out. guy in the cube next to him. <laughs> Just let it out, man, you'll feel better. So in the 90s, there was a, a professor at Iowa State University, his name was Brad Bushman, and he decided he was going to see if this, you know, everybody thought this was the way to go, express your, your anger, to see if it worked. So here's what he did. He grabbed 180 kids at, at Iowa State, and he had them write a paper, an essay, an essay either for or against abortion. So this was a hot-button issue. It was a moral issue. It was a theological, religious issue. And so these kids were coming on it. They were invested in it. They had strong feelings. What he told them was, I'm going to take your paper, and I'm going to have it graded by another student here at Iowa. And he, well, he wasn't telling the truth. He actually just went in the back and evenly divided the papers up. And either at the top, he wrote A plus great, great paper, or I wanna give you exactly what, what he wrote. Uh, he wrote in big red letters, this is one of the worst essays I have ever read, exclamation point. <laughs> and so then he, he let the, he, he, he divided them into two groups, right? Now you've got the people that are really upset, right? like I, how dare you? And you've got, you've got the, uh, well, he dismissed the people who got a good grade like that. They were fine. And he took the angry people and he divided them into two groups. And what they were told is, okay, you're going to get now to compete, against the pers- compete in a competition against the person who graded your essay. So the first group was told that, hey, you know, one of the ways that's best to, v- to get rid of anger, right, is don't leave it in, just get it out. And so he provided them with a punching bag, and these kids wailed on the punching bag for two minutes. The other kids were told, just sit here and the competition will start in a couple of minutes. Well, the game was simple. All you had to do was press a button as fast as you could. But if you lost the game, you would get blasted with a, like, deafening noise. When you win, you got to choose to blast your opponent. But not just blast them. You could set the volume of what they would have to endure between zero and 10. 10 was 105 decibels, so it was pretty significant. So on average... The group that just had to sit there for a couple of minutes, they ratcheted their thing up to 2.4 out of 10. The punching punching bag group, (laughs) 8.5. The people who got angry didn't release any anger on the punching bag, it just ate them up. The group which cooled off lost their desire for vengeance. In fact, he goes on and he starts studying it over and over again, he tries it with hot sauce. Same thing, the people that vented, they piled up the hot sauce on those they were angry about. The people that didn't vent, they didn't put much on. He even did things like he took word puzzles and he put a word like C-H dash dash E. The people that just sat there and didn't, didn't vent, most of those people answered chase. Anybody know what most of the people who vented wrote? Choke. <laughs> he said it happened over and over and over again. Why? Because venting does not work. You've been sold a bag of goods. So what does? How do we handle, handle anger if the answer isn't, well, I'm just going to get it out? What do we do with it? Well, back to Jesus' younger brother, who I'm imagining had to figure out how to vent his anger. Here's what he writes. He goes, what causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Why do you fight? Why do, why do, and I want you to be thinking about a, con, a relationship conflict you're in right now. Why do we fight? Why do I argue with my wife? Why do I yell at my kids? Why am I so upset at my boss? Why, what, uh, why can't I stand that liberal on Facebook? Why can't I stand that annoying conservative on Fox? Why don't my kids, why won't my kids talk to me anymore? Why won't my sister come for Christmas? And so James actually answers his own question, because I think he probably wrestled with it a little bit himself. He said... Don't these quarrels and arguments, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You see, you desire, but you don't have, and and so you kill. And and you covet, but you can't get what you want. And and so as a result, you quarrel and fight. And so James starts by saying, you know what causes quarrels and fights? It turns out, I want you to stick your, your, your name in here, okay? It turns out the fight, the quarrels between Joan and I, and Caleb and I, and you and I, you know who the issue is? Me. Doesn't it come from something in you? There's a war at work within you. Specifically, there's something that you wanted that you didn't get, and it's warring in you. And he goes on. He says, you know, you do not have, that's why you're angry, you don't have because you don't ask God, and when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives." that you might spend it on your own good pleasures. See, James says, look, it's not them. <coughs> Time out. It's not them, it, it's you. And, and you're, not getting, you're not getting what you, what you want. N- notice this is not a needs issue, right? So many times, oh, I'm mad because I'm not getting my needs met. No, 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 you're mad oftentimes because you're not getting your wants met. You and I are really good at wanting. We are full-time wanters. We are a people driven by desires. And, 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 un, and wanters, people driven by unchecked desires, we can find ourselves in a lot of fights, but a lot of times we don't get in those fights. We just let it boil inside, boil. I saw what he posted. I saw what she, where she was. I, I asked him to do it, and he didn't. I can't believe he got the promotion. And it just sits there, it sits there, until suddenly, one day, boom! And what we know is that doesn't help. Boom doesn't help. It's interesting. He goes on, James, James goes on to quote the law and the prophets. He, he pulls a verse from Proverbs. He goes, this is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. What causes fights and, and, and arguments among us? James says, well, there's three things. There, there's your desire for possession. There's your desire for pleasure. And there's your desire for position. These are the three things that you always want, and when you don't get them, something gets at work inside of you that's warring. Now, enter into this with me for a minute, because some of you are angry right now. Go ahead a minute. Elbow that guy sitting right next to you right now. I am so... James says, look, stop. I want you to look within. Look within for just a moment. See, for many of us, the issue is we want stuff and we don't have it. And and the person that we're in conflict with, we don't have it, but they do and they don't want to give it to us. They know what I want and they won't give it to me. They won't share. And so we get ticked. The issue is not that we want things. The issue is the things that we want. Being a wanter isn't bad. God is a wanter. Did you know that? It sounds strange to say that. God is a wanter. But James says in the same chapter that God yearns jealously for us. God created things for us to use and to enjoy. But the relationship, the way things were to work was we were to use things and love people. But if you want to understand why you might be in conflict with somebody, somebody about something this morning, James is on to the reversal that has happened in most of our lives. We, more often than not, start loving things and using people. I really want this and i want it for you for you or from you or i need you if i don't have you then i can't get it and so we begin to manipulate people and try to control them so we can get what it is we want and then when they don't do what we want them to do anger now very few of us do this consciously we'll talk about that in a second but in our relationships even when people even with the people that we have pledged to love how often are our fights based on our inability to give or provide when they have an inability to give or provide what we want? Now, sometimes those things are physical, right? He knows what I want. He just won't give it to me. Sometimes it's at work. Ah, I deserve that promotion. I can't believe I didn't get that raise. But James puts his finger on something else. He says sometimes it's not stuff. Sometimes it's pleasure. Oftentimes things are more, more subtle. Uh, it's, it's things like respect. Oh, admiration. You know, you, there's a war in there. Because I really wanted this. So both of my sons wrestled, um, Caleb and John. And so Caleb always won. Um, John won about half of the time. And uh, so, uh, so, so John, like rooting for John, was rooting for the underdog. He'll tell you this himself he's out in the hall. So one day when John was wrestling, he was like in sixth or seventh grade, He was varsity. Now, And you know what that meant? That meant I was a varsity dad. I've told somebody this story before. I love being a varsity dad. Do you know when you're the varsity dad, you get to be in the varsity gym? Do you know where you have to go when you're a JV dad? JV gym. I'm in the varsity gym. Until one day, I got a call at home from John's wrestling coach, who was a three-time NCAA gold medalist, who informed me that his son, who, of course, he had been training in wrestling from the age of conception, had dropped a few pounds and was now going to be wrestling my son, John, off for his position. To which I told him, I totally understand. That seems very reasonable to me. Why shouldn't your son drop down from the position he has to take my son's? I'm fine with that. Then I hung up, and I I ventilated some anger. I went to bed that night, and I was just getting eaten up inside by this, going, I can't believe this. I, this, I can't believe this. And so then every once in a while, God just kind of puts a finger on something in my heart. And uh, he goes, John, why are you mad right now? I didn't hear this, but I kind of felt it. Why are you mad? So I started looking inside. What, what does James say? What's going on in you? Look at you. Why are you mad? So I started looking inside, and here's what I realized. There was about 10% of me that was mad because I was upset that my son was going to be upset because I'm a good dad. But if I'm honest with you, of the reason I was mad is I was going to be in the JV gym. I want to be a varsity dad. And so what James is saying is like there's something you want. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's pleasure. But it's a misplaced want issue. Are you loving things and using people? Well, God isn't against pleasure, right? Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy later on in the Scriptures, God has richly provided for us everything for our enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with enjoyment. But when pleasure starts to become primary and people become secondary, that's when conflict ensues. By the way, this is what allows people like your pastor to not care that much that the world lives on $5 a day. I feel bad, but, you know, I've got to get it. A- Got to get a car and stuff. This is why James says, look, you don't have because you don't ask God, and you don't get when you do because what you're asking for is simply for your own pleasure and not for others. And if you think I'm wrong about this, just think about what you prayed for last. Last. And then finally, there's this, there's this root of all sin, pride. If I was going to rank for you what causes relational strife in my own life with my friends, with my family, it's, it's pride more than any other thing. So uh, how many of you have done SDI? Um, not as many in this service. Boy, first service was like the whole church. And I went out with some church uh, folks the other night. We were all standing around. Everybody's talking about what color they are. So we've been giving you a tool um, for the space between us. So we've done this the last two weekends. We have one more weekend coming up. Unfortunately, I'm telling you about, like, a toy you can't get because they're all sold out, but we'll be doing it again. Uh, and I was out with friends the other night, and everybody's talking about what color they are, what color they are. And it's like, oh, I finally realized why I can't stand him, you know, like, because, you know, he's this. And so I am a red, uh, which, if you know me, is no surprise. It means I, I, I want to win. And, and then as I've looked at myself, uh, that's a driving force for me, Then I started to realize it's not just that I want to win. I want to make sure, see, there's really no enjoyment in winning if you don't know that I won, right? (laughs) So I need to figure out ways to communicate that fact to you so you understand it so I can have some pleasure out of that. And and, and so what the world becomes for people like me is it becomes kind of binary. In order for me to win, more often than not, it means somebody's going to have to lose. So then James would ask me this question. He would say, what is it that's warring in you, Uh, maybe more plainly, Why do you have to win all the time? Like, would it be okay to lose? Why do you have to be right all the time? Why can't you just listen to me? Why do you have to be already formulating your argument? So that's why I think James is saying, look, you don't understand. Unity, oneness is so important. It's my brother's legacy. It's vital to his message. In order for us to to be one, we're going to have to stop looking at them and start examining our own hearts. Where is this, because of my, where in my life is the desire for my possessions or pleasure or pride, where is it bringing me into conflict? And then he doesn't just leave us there. He says, Do you want the solution to it? Here's the solution. A couple of quick things. First, he says, look, submit yourselves then to God. Submit means to yield. Yield to God's desires, not your own. You always yield to your own desires. Yield to your own. And you can only yield and submit to somebody to the extent that you trust God. What would it look like if you, in those moments of conflict, paused and said, I'm not, I feel it coming. But I'm going to pause for a minute, and I am going to yield to God. I'm going to trust Him for provision and pleasure. I'm going to trust Him for what He says about me and how He values me. I'm going to stop trying to get it from you. In fact, at one point, James, right in this argument, he says scornfully, you adulterous people, he goes, you're cheating on God. Because it's God who longs to be your most prized possession. It's God who desires to be your joy and and your greatest pleasure. It's God who says you're his beloved, you're his desired, you're his most precious and loved and valued child. Valued so highly he sent his son for you. Why are you cheating on me trying to get it from all these other people? And then you get all upset when they won't give it to you. Submit yourself to God. And stop trying to get all these things from other people. And then he says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Here's a core principle of Christianity. You and I are born into a world at war. We didn't ask for it, but that's what it is. There is an epic battle between the forces of good and evil in the spiritual realm. We have an enemy, and that enemy's primary weapon is no different than the the weapon used in modern-day warfare, and that's simply this, divide and conquer. You want to blow up a family? Divide mom and dad. You want to blow up a church? Start dividing the people up. Disunity ruins all of that. I think James would want us to be conscious of this. When we begin to feel conflict or tension, when it begins to rise in a relationship, wouldn't it be, a way, wouldn't it be wonderful to go, wait a minute, I am not going to get suckered into this again. What, I'm not going to be this foolish. I'm not going to be used by the enemy that understands love and unity point to Jesus and point to the love of God. My daughter, Courtney, who's a character if you know her, She has a pretty funny t-shirt she wears around. It simply says, not today, Satan. And so, I think we apply that to lots of things, but wouldn't it be pretty cool that the next time you started to get angry and you felt conflict rising and space growing, what if you today just said, you know what? Not today, Satan. You're not doing it to me today. I'm not letting you in, right? I'm going to resist this. I'm gonna resist the need to, to, to act out and do all the things I normally do. And finally, finally, James says, look, here's what you do. Come near to God. Satan will flee, but if you would come near to God, he'll come near to you. The scientific work on this is very clear. Venting out doesn't work. It only gets you angry. It causes a terrible pattern for living. Instead of venting out, how about venting up? How about in those moments when, when, you're, when you're feeling it coming, how about you, 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 you enter into a cooling off period? Before you talk, Come near to God. Pray. Take every thought captive for a moment and make it obedient to Christ. Come near to God in those moments. Ask him to speak to you and to show you. And then James finishes. He goes, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And to a people that, were, that thought they were better than everybody else, he says, look, you need to grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, before the Lord, he'll lift you up. He's trying to lift yourself up. What if you humbled yourself? There's one long way of saying, now that you have submitted and you've resisted and you've drawn near, now do this. Own your stuff. Change your mind. Wash your hands. I don't know what conflict you're in today. Here's what I know. You own some of it. You might own 10% of it or 90% of it, but you own some of it. Humble yourself. Take ownership for it. Jesus by the way, he humbled himself. It's a shame his followers are known for, known for being so proud. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God and humble yourself. It's interesting. James ends with two things that always happen when you don't do this. He goes, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Don't talk about each other. Anybody who speaks against a brother or sister judges them or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? What are we supposed to be doing with my neighbor? Oh, that's right, not judging him, but loving him. The church should love, not slander others or judge others, but I can't help but be bummed out that somehow that became our rep. And as a result, here's what I think is happening as a result. I think just kind of conversely, as a result, people aren't believing Jesus is who he said he is. People don't believe that God loves them. And people aren't finding their purpose and their calling in life. And they're wandering aimlessly. In fact, I have to tell you, if you want to know why the church hasn't been prevailing in recent years, it's because we have been outloved by people outside the church. I'm gonna close with a story that haunted me a little bit this week as I reflected on it. I was reminded of the parable Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. It's a really famous parable. A a teacher of the law that knew all of these 600 plus laws, he came up to Jesus and he he said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And and many of you know Jesus said, well, uh, there's one, it's that you should love the Lord your God and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And So the teacher was trying to trip him up and so he said, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus didn't answer that question directly. Instead, he told a story. Here's what he said. It was an offensive story, really offensive to those who heard it, like it really bothered them. Jesus said there was a man who was on a trip, and he he fell prey to robbers. They beat him, and they left him for dead on the side of the road. He was just kind of bleeding out there. Two different religious leaders, respected followers of the law, walked by him because of various religious rules and regulations. They couldn't touch the bleeding man or it would have made them ceremonially unclean. And they needed to obey the law. And so they just passed by on the other side. They, they were good at raising the law over love. And Jesus said, A Samaritan man, a man from Samaria, Jesus' audience often referred to the Samaritans as godless dogs. The Samaritans were, were thought by the Jews to be terribly sin, sinful people, far from God. A, a Samaritan guy, he came by and he took care of the man and he bandaged him up and he paid for a room for him. And the Samaritan loved. Him. so Jesus asked the teacher of the law, he goes, So which of these men was a neighbor? And the religious guy begrudgingly admitted, well, I guess the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you should go and do likewise. Why I bring that up is because I was reminded of it as a religious guy myself so clearly this week. Maybe you were too with the story of Ellen sitting next to George W. Bush at the Cowboys game last week. Most of you know that Ellen is a gay woman and she's married to another woman. Something that President Bush ran against as part of his platform. Something that many of us as evangelicals would profess the truth of the scripture is that that is not the will of God. Marriage is for a man and a woman for life. And so, as a result of that, and as a result of them sitting together, lots of controversy sprung up on both sides. Both camps kind of got fired up. How could she sit by him? How could he sit by her? What kind of message are you sending to these different audiences with different beliefs? Social media went crazy. Criticism was everywhere. To which Ellen responded with this. I'm friends with George. In fact, I'm friends with lots of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different. And I think we've forgotten that that's okay that we're all different. Just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. When I say be kind to one another, I I don't mean only the people who think the same way you do. I just mean be kind to everyone. Church, let me ask you a question. Last Sunday, who was the better neighbor? Now go and do likewise.